welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report for January 9th, 2023. I'm Phil Ander. As the world divides into two main economic and geopolitical camps, one led by the United States and the other by China, the dollar's status as the world's dominant currency could eventually be challenged. Confluence Investment Management Market Strategist Patrick Fear and Hernandez joins us today to discuss how the contrasting management styles of these two major economic blocks might impact and perhaps create opportunities for investors. Patrick, as you've written before, you see the U.S. camp made up largely of our traditional democratic allies and the China camp composed of countries with more autocratic governments, which include some major commodity producers. And some countries seem to be unaffiliated or only leaning in one direction or the other. And we can expect persuasion tactics aimed at these countries in the future, orchestrated by both the U.S. and China. You make the case in your current report that the management styles of the U.S. and China are vastly different. Let's consider the United States for a few moments first. What are the main characteristics of our management style? Well, hi, Phil. And first, thanks for uh, having me on the program. To answer your question, we have often referred to the U.S. in its traditional dominant role as the world's benevolent hegemon. By that, we mean that the U.S. style of dominance has been a unique combination of policies designed to keep foreign countries in our camp by way of, one, maintaining our own legitimacy as a peace-loving, just, democratic, and free-market-oriented country, Two, providing the public good of protecting countries from foreign aggression and maintaining the security of the commercial sea lanes. And three, providing the world's reserve currency, the U.S. dollar, by being open to foreign trade and capital flows. These attractive policies tended to keep foreign countries in our camp voluntarily because foreigners believed in our values and there developed a consensus that it was in their self-interest to follow us. We tended to apply coercion only against a small number of bad-acting rogue states. Putting ourselves in the shoes of an unaffiliated country, what's the main appeal of the U.S. management style? We think foreigners are attracted to U.S. leadership because it evokes positive values, promises the potential for economic growth, and offers the opportunity for them to become richer. Those are all positive incentives to acquiesce in U.S. leadership, or at least they were for decades. So our status can be described as a benevolent leader who refrains to a great extent from outright military coercion. How about the dollar? Has our status as a major importer allowed us to use the dollar as a coercion tool? Yes, even though being open to trade and emitting dollars into the global financial system has been welcomed by foreigners, we've also occasionally used the dollar as a way to sanction bad actors, as we recently did to punish Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. It's not nearly as violent as using military force, but now that the dollar is the world's reserve currency and it's used for so much foreign trade, it's a pretty powerful tool when we can keep rogue states from using it. Do you see this changing? 
There have long been efforts by some countries, especially big authoritarian countries, to get around this risk, but the efforts are likely intensifying right now. As we discuss in the report, countries like China, Russia, and Iran are all starting to buy into the idea of using the Chinese currency, the yuan or renminbi, to trade crude oil and potentially other goods and services. Now, as we look at management styles, China is a much different story. It seems to me that other countries might not have a high level of trust regarding China's intentions. Is this a problem for China? Well, yes. A lot of countries that like U.S. leadership or are used to U.S. leadership are going to be repelled by China's authoritarian political system and state-led economy. And China's recent geopolitical aggressiveness and hardball economic tactics won't help it either. On the other hand, there are some countries that will probably feel more comfortable under Chinese leadership. Patrick, in some ways, including its extremely high debt and excess manufacturing capacity, China seems to be in a radically different position than the United States. So it makes sense that China would have to employ a different management style. What strategies are available for China to use in order to tackle the problems of its excess capacity and debt? Well, you're exactly right. China has to do something about those problems. And throughout history, countries in a similar situation have developed a whole range of strategies that it could possibly use. For example, it could simply allow its asset prices to adjust via the market like the U.S. did during the Great Depression. It could also just allow its growth to stagnate, as Japan has done since the end of its bubble economy in 1990. It could push its industry to produce ever more high-value products, as Germany's done since World War II, and it could even launch a war. There are lots of options, although most of them are socially or economically or politically risky. Which strategy seems most likely? Well, we think Chinese leaders are most likely to choose a final, more traditional option that has often been relied on by countries throughout history. We think they'll adopt a modernized form of imperialism or colonialism. It'll likely involve the really crucial aspects of colonialism, which is where the mother country exercises a great deal of control over the colony in order to ensure that it gets preferred access to the colony's basic resources and lower-value manufactured goods, while using the colony as a captive market for the mother country's higher-value factory goods. The mother country fills up its excess capacity and generates the income to service its debts. It also enjoys a trade surplus, which can then be recycled cycled into further investment into the colony. Patrick, how might Chinese colonialism differ from the European expansion that we're familiar with? Well, for one thing, it'll probably be much less driven by military power, since the Chinese military still doesn't have the ability to project overwhelming power in faraway places or practice the same gunboat diplomacy of the Europeans. Instead, China is likely to build its colonial system based on its huge economy. China is the world's second largest importer, right after the U.S., so it can try to incentivize the voluntary cooperation of other countries with the carrot of access to the Chinese market or access to Chinese capital. It can also cut off access to that market to coerce other countries or punish them for actions that China doesn't like, as it did against Australia after its government called for an investigation into China's role in the uh, coronavirus pandemic. 
these types of consensus and coercion strategies could be pretty powerful in the hands of Chinese leaders. Because of China's authoritarian, state-driven system, they can't match U.S. legitimacy, but they will try to offer like-minded authoritarian leaders a chance to cooperate without all the human rights and similar concerns that the U.S. would worry about. Is China's Belt and Road Initiative part of its colonialist strategy? Yes, it was one of the first elements of this strategy. With that initiative, China channeled almost a trillion dollars of loans into mostly poorer countries around the world for roads, bridges, ports, and other basic infrastructure. The idea was to boost those countries' ability to export their commodities and other factory inputs to China while making them dependent on Chinese capital. Patrick, because of China's huge running surplus, it seems to me that natural pairings would best occur with countries running deficits, kind of like the U.S.-China relationship that helped buoy U.S. stocks in the past decade. But some of these big commodity-producing autocratic countries have huge surpluses of their own. Is this a problem for China? Yes, that was one of the interesting findings in the study that we conducted for this report. If you look at the whole group of countries that we expect to fall into China's evolving geopolitical bloc, a lot of the smaller and poorer and less developed ones do indeed have big trade deficits with China, just as you would expect with traditional colonialism. But some big commodity producers, especially the major Middle East crude oil exporters, have big surpluses with China. That reflects the fact that these countries are so productive in generating this important resource, but don't have the population or non-oil economy to absorb many Chinese exports. Now, China still wants, even needs, these countries in its camp. But it needs to find a way to manage their big surplus so that when China buys their output, it doesn't increase its dependency on the U.S. dollar. After all, most global trade in oil is conducted in dollars. So is increasing the value of China's currency part of its overall strategic plan? Yes, in the sense that Chinese leaders want to shift to using their own currency, the yuan or renminbi, for their imports, or at least for their imports of oil. They're already moving toward creating such a petro yuan for their trade with Russia and Iran, but we suspect they'll keep trying to increase the use of the yuan for their key imports over time with other countries. As the world fractures into a, at least a U.S.-led geopolitical bloc and a, a Chinese-led bloc, the result will likely be a kind of dual reserve system in which the dollar remains the key reserve currency for the U.S. bloc and the yuan or petro yuan becomes the key reserve currency for China's camp. It seems to me that China has its hands full regarding economic challenges and is perhaps in a much shakier position than the United States. What main obstacles stand in the way of China's currency attaining the status of a reserve currency equal or close to equal with the dollar? Well, China certainly has some hurdles to overcome. For example, it has struggled to make its currency a reserve asset for years because of problems like its underdeveloped capital markets and restrictions on capital flows. More fundamentally, China will struggle to make its currency a viable reserve asset if it is a fiat currency. As observers worldwide saw how the U.S. essentially froze Russia's access to the fiat dollar last year, they're now hypersensitive to how much they could trust 
trust any currency that the Chinese might issue, and China will struggle to be trusted. Therefore, they could well need to link their currency to a hard asset probably some kind of commodity like gold, oil, and the like. The Chinese would also potentially make it in digital form so it doesn't touch the world's banking system. It will be a complicated project, but we think that's the basic direction they're heading in. And to the extent that China is successful in establishing its currency as a viable reserve asset, it'll likely undermine the demand for U.S. dollars and help push down the value of the greenback. Patrick, how would a U.S. dollar on a long-term downward trend impact investment strategy? Well, one big impact would probably be to boost the performance of foreign stocks versus U.S. stocks. Although the China camp may sell down its holdings of all the major currencies of the U.S. bloc, the selling would probably fall disproportionately on the greenback. And historically, when the dollar has weakened relative to the euro, the pound, the yen, etc., it's been a good time to invest in foreign equities. Another big impact would likely be to support commodity prices, since they're typically denominated in dollars. And the rise in commodity values in dollars would be further boosted simply by the geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China. To sum up, as part of your very long-term prognosis, you see the dollar losing some value. You also see a shift out of bonds and continued strength in commodities. Is that a fair summation? Yes, that is our general expectation given everything that we're seeing in terms of the world breaking up into blocks, commodities being weaponized, inflation and interest rates rising, and the dollar falling. Yes. So is now the time for investors to take any action? Well, these are longer-term trends, so we think investors right now should probably be more focused on the recession that we expect to hit imminently. For example, even though the longer-term trend may be for commodity prices to jump, the impending recession is likely to drive them downward first. For now, we think it's better to keep a minimal or no exposure to commodities. More broadly, we think that investors in the near term should also focus on more defensive assets, such as value equities and treasuries, before shifting to take advantage of the trends we're discussing here later. Thank you, Patrick. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.